Well, church, we have the joy of having one of our deacons preach this morning, so will you please give a warm welcome to Nick Harris as he comes to preach the word. Well, good morning. We will be uh, in the the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I, at my job, I get a lot of spam emails. Do you get a lot of spam emails? I was looking in my spam folder, and it currently contains 1,200 spams. Uh, And that folder only stores the last 30 days of correspondence, right? Do the math. 40 per day or so. Um, and you know this, it's, it's wise to every once in a while check that folder um, because you might be missing something, right? Something uh, important, important. The other day, I checked my spam folder and I found a notification that the state of California was holding uh, unclaimed property or unclaimed money uh, in an account for me, right? And like you, I thought it was a scam. I thought it was more spam, but I clicked on the link and I went to the website and I found out, in fact, the state of California was holding $8.67 of unclaimed money. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was from Toyota Motor Corporation for a vehicle that I owned uh, in the year 2000. There was some sort of of recall. So I electronically filed for the money and I'm expecting a check uh, to come in the mail (laughs) in the next year or so. Uh, But after I was done uh, filing for my $8, I did a quick search to see how much money the state of California is holding uh, for people uh, in accounts like that. And the answer is $10 billion dollars. And that represents 17 million accounts, which is roughly half the population of the state. Now, if you do the math, that means that the average adult in California has about a 50% chance of having $600 or so in some account somewhere in Sacramento. And right now, most of those people don't have a clue that that money exists. Um, But guess what? Some people out there have a lot more than $600 in untapped resources that they don't know about. I mentioned my discovery at a 4th of July barbecue with some family, and there was a member of my family, who shall remain unnamed, who said that they did that same search on the state's website and found that they were owed $8,000 that they had no idea was in an account for more than two years. And it was real. And he got a check in the mail. And it only took two weeks. Miracle. Now, I, I know many of you, I'm looking around now to see if anyone has logged on to the state's website. <laughs> and like I said, there's a 50% chance that California has some sort of money that was misplaced for you at some point um, long ago. But what if I told you that there's a spiritual resource out there, one that is infinitely greater than money, that God is holding for you? Would you want to know about it? Yeah, would you want to know how to get it? Would you search for it? 
And would you ask God to give it to you? Well, guess what? There is such a spiritual resource, and the Lord wants his people to have it. But he also wants us to know that the only way to access this resource is through prayer. And my friends, uh, that is what our text is about uh, today. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Now, it's our tradition at our church to stand up when the word of the Lord is read. So please join me in standing as we read the word of the Lord together. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when he, his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would show us what this resource is, Lord, and how we can live the lives that you call us to in the Sermon on the Mount. May you do that today uh, for your own glory and for your own renown. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so here we are in the latter portions of the Sermon on the Mount. And for a second time, Jesus brings up the topic of prayer and accessing this divine resource that God is holding for us. And so in this text, we are going to see Jesus' flow of thought through three points, all of which point toward relating to God and praying for this divine resource. In verse 7, we'll see his command to pray for the divine resource. In verse 8, we'll see his promise that that prayer will be answered. And in verses 9 through 11, we will see the proof that the prayer will be answered. So three points, his command, his promise, and his proof. Okay, the first one, Jesus' command to pray for this divine resource. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, right away, we know, even though we don't see the word prayer or pray in this entire passage, we know that prayer is what he is talking about. How do we know? Because to ask and to seek and to knock are verbs that describe someone who needs something that they don't have or cannot produce on their own. These are the words of someone who is trying to get the attention of someone else who can help them. And if you look at verse 11, we see that the someone who can help them is the Heavenly Father. So yes, this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is about prayer. Speaking with God, the one who will help his children when they recognize it. So why three words instead of just one word? Pray. Why doesn't he just say pray and it will be given to you? Pray and you will find. Pray and it will be opened up to you. Why three words? 
Did you notice how those words all have a different sense of urgency and a different level of importance and need that comes with them? Right? There's a difference between gently asking someone something and knocking on their door or pounding on their door. When you knock on someone's door, whatever the need is cannot wait any longer, right? This happens in my house all the time, usually while I'm taking a nap. All the time when I'm taking a nap, it seems like. Right? So one of my kids in their room will, will yell out, Dad! Right? And then, I, you know, I don't, I don't answer on that first call. Why? Right? Because I'm just waking up from the stupor. You know, but they'll wait a couple seconds and then a little bit higher, a little higher octave the next time, right? Dad! Right? And I don't want to wake up, so I don't say anything. There's no answer. And so then you hear, then what happens, right? They go, they go up and down the stairs, like, look, looking for me, right? They've moved from asking to seeking, right? And finally, they'll come up to my bedroom door and see that it's closed. And they probably know that I'm, I'm taking a nap, right? But if it's an immediate need, what are they going to do? They're going to knock on that door. And sometimes an immediate need is a lost shoe. But, um, but such are the joys of, of parenting. So right away, Jesus is teaching us that whatever the need, whatever the level of urgency, he says to pray about it. Right? Nothing is too small or nothing is too big for God, and he's not taking a nap. Okay, but did you notice that Jesus' answer to the prayer in verse 7 is the word it? Right? Right? Kind of an ambiguous answer. Right? Asking it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Question, what is it? And what was asked for in this prayer? Right? In verse 11, we see that good gifts... And good things are mentioned as the answer, but that doesn't narrow it down very much. I mean, when we're talking about God, it's impossible for God to give a bad gift or a bad thing, right? No doubt. So what is the it Jesus is referring to? What is this divine resource that Jesus is telling us to ask God about? This resource that is only accessible through prayer. Right? In human and English language, when we use the word it, it usually refers back to something else. Right? For example, um, I parked my car at the school. It is next to the light pole. Right? It refers to my car. Right? No doubt. But when we look back in the immediate context of this passage, it's hard to find precisely what Jesus could be referring to. What is it? Uh, we see that what came before this verse was Jesus' teaching on being discerning with the proclamation of the good news to those who are going to trample over it. Or as Jesus said, do not throw your pearls before swine. Right? Is that the reason why Jesus inserts a command here to pray in verse 7? To ask, seek, and knock on God's door to help us to be discerning with who we share the gospel with. It could be. But in that discussion of the differences of those verbs and the level of urgency there, it seems that Jesus might have more in mind than just discernment. If we go back and further into the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus' 
discussion of judging others comes right before that, that part about uh, casting your pearls before swine. And now certainly judging others is something that we should be on our knees day and night asking for God to help us not to do. Is that what Jesus is referring to here, uh, to here in his command to pray? Is that what it is? Help in fighting the battle not to judge others. Could be. But if we go back even further into the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus' discussion on anxiety and worry. Is that why the command to pray is here? Is that what it is all about? If we go back further, we find Jesus' words on materialism. And before that, the danger of publicizing the fact that you are fasting. Right? Those issues of the heart that he talks about. And before forgiving others their sins against you. Are those the types of things that we need to ask, seek, and knock on God's door about? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. But if you go back further, what comes before forgiving others their trespasses against you? The Lord's Prayer, which is really interesting. Right? Jesus devoted two entire sections of the Sermon on the Mount to prayer. And the question is, why? Right? You may have noticed that those two sections on prayer in this sermon um, are, are almost equidistantly apart. Right? They're, they're spaced almost apart. If you could put the entire Sermon on the Mount on one page, you would see that the two sections on prayer are, are equidistant. Right? There's the, the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, and then there's like seven or eight commands, and then comes the Lord's Prayer. And after the Lord's Prayer, there's like seven or eight commands, and then comes this prayer right here. And so you see everyone sitting on that hillside in Galilee hearing this sermon would have known what it was right away. They would have known precisely why Jesus brought up prayer for the second time. Why? Because they listened to the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. We started the Sermon on the Mount in October. And we tend to forget the entire flow of thought and the impossibility of living according to Jesus' standards and commands. Question, what beatitude, command, or teaching in the Sermon on the Mount are you able to live on your own? And if you think you've done well with any of them, remember, perfection is the standard. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we all know that no one has been perfect. And like Paul had said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is it? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Church, it is enablement. Enablement. One of the greatest theological words ever. Enablement. It simply means to make possible. To make the impossible life that Jesus describes through the Sermon on the Mount possible. It is divine grace and forgiveness and empowerment. It is a new day every day. And through the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus, a blank slate every day. And divine enablement to live the life Jesus describes. 
or as he said, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever read this same account in the book of Luke? Right? Luke, Luke says it is something a little different, doesn't he? In Luke eleven thirteen, which matches up here with verse 11 in Matthew, the text reads, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right? So, is it enablement? Or is it the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. Right? God the Spirit enables God's people to live the life he's called them to. And folks, Jesus Jesus promises to enable his children, us, to live the life of the kingdom every time we pray. And that is Jesus' second point in his flow of thought. Look at verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Right? This is the language of promise. This is Jesus' guarantee to answer the prayer for help to live out the righteous life that he wants for his people. Right? But Jesus wants us to see that there are stipulations to this promise. It's hard to see because we're not reading this text in the original language. But in verse 7, ask, seek, and knock are simple verbs. In verse 8, ask, seek, and knock are present tense participles. Who's a grammar nerd? Okay, good. No one. No one raised their hand. I know some of you are in here. Some of you used to be English teachers in here. Right? At, uh, participles. Present tense participles changes things quite a bit. Participles are ing words. And so all of those verbs should be translated with the ing on them. They should be asking, seeking, knocking. But that would sound kind of weird, right? Right? Ever, to say everyone who is asking receives, it's kind of, it's kind of, it didn't flow well. And so the editors at the NASB Bible left the ing ending off. And with the present tense, this, these ing words, that this means that these are things that are continually happening. Continually happening ing words, right? So really, the translation means those who are continually asking, those who are continually seeking, and those who are continually knocking, they are the ones who have their prayer for enablement to live a holy life answered. Right? But the stipulation is that these people know and love and continually spend time with the Lord. They have repented. They have surrendered their life to Christ. And they are daily walking with Him. They are constantly asking for His help and enablement to grow, mature in their faith, and work out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven now. Right? The story is told of a fishing boat captain who was once a member of a Christian church. Right, you know where this story's going. He was out to sea with his crew, and a storm hit. Right, it looked like the boat would capsize and sink. And the crew knew of the captain's church going past, so they called on him to pray. But the captain said, I haven't been to church in a long time, and I haven't been praying either. I don't know if it'll help, but I'll surely give it a try. So the captain bowed his head and said, Lord... I haven't been to church in a long time. And it's been 15 years since I've prayed. 
But if you will help me this time and bring us safely home, then I promise I won't bother you again for another 15 years. Right? The captain may have believed in God, but he certainly did not have the desire to walk with him and depend on him throughout his life. He did not want to grow. So the promise to answer the prayer for enablement assumes there is a desire to be enabled to live the life of the kingdom. Right? As we've been reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount, have you been saying, I want that? I desire that. I don't have that, but I want that, right? Do you want to stop judging people? Do you want to live a carefree life with no worry? Do you want to give up the idol of materialism? Do you want to let go of your right to hold on to the debt of other sins against you? Do you want to give up lust and anger? Do you want to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth? Desire to live the life of the kingdom is the stipulation. And if you have that desire, Jesus guarantees that you will be helped. Remember the fourth beatitude, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and what? Thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Right? Do you know in, in Greek that that word satisfied, do you know what that word literally means? It means gorged, fattened. Oh, to be fat in the kingdom of God, right? And so that's my prayer uh, for everyone in this church, that God would make you fat with righteousness, no doubt. But on top of having a desire for righteousness, Jesus' promise also stipulates that you know your Bible, How many times have Jesus' words here been taken out of context by the name it and claim it crowd and the prosperity folks? A lot, right? If you've ever read this verse and prayed that God would give you a new Corvette and he didn't answer that prayer, that's why, right? It's not about material things. It's about enablement by the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. Now think back into the Sermon on the Mount. How much of the sermon has been devoted to prayer for material things? Just a a couple, couple words, right? There's the appeal for daily bread in the Lord's Prayer and an appeal for food, drink, and clothes in Jesus' discussion on worry and anxiety. You remember that? But remember what Jesus said? He said, don't worry about food, drink, or clothes, but rather to what? To seek first. His kingdom and his righteousness, and then his promise is what? That all those things will be added unto you. Right, folks, we must know our Bible if we are to pray rightly. Right, God has told us who he is, how we can be saved, and how we can relate to him and others in 800,000 words in this book. Right, we need to know what's in this book if we're going to pray correctly and rightly, right? And so, we, and so that we don't take verses like verse 7 out of context and teach others to do the same, right? How many people have been led astray with prosperity theology when God doesn't answer their prayer for material things, right? And then they walk away from the faith. Or even worse, they're told they didn't have enough faith, that it was their fault 
that their prayer for material things wasn't answered. Right? That's sinister stuff, and it starts with not knowing the Word of God and how to pray to God. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this book, but the best definition of prayer that I've ever come across is in a book by a man named Timothy Keller. And he wrote this, Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through His Word and His grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with Him. Prayer is a continuing a conversation that God has started. Isn't that amazing? So what does that mean? It means that we should have our Bibles open most of the time when we are praying. It means that God is the one who starts the conversation. He is the one who has the agenda. He is the one who knows what we need to flourish in His kingdom. He talks and we respond by asking Him to do what He's asking us to do. It was the 4th century church father, Augustine, who wrote this famous line. Maybe you've heard this. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Command what you will, but give what you command. Why did he write that? Because throughout Scripture, he could see that God enables his people, when they pray, to do what he asks them to do. And when we know that, we find it on every page of the Bible. Here are a few examples. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Old Testament, 2 Chronicles thirty twelve. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.10, this is Paul. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. He's talking about the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Right, folks, when we desire to live the life of the kingdom, and when we know the word of God, we can pray prayers that are guaranteed to be answered. Amen? Okay, Jesus' third point in his flow of thought, and that is his proof, right? We've seen his command, we've seen his promise, and now we see his proof in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone, right? That's, that's really messed up, right? That's a, that's a cruel picture, here, right? A father giving his hungry son a stone, like a brown river rock that looks like a loaf of bread rather than real bread. And so to take us on this road of deductive logic to prove his point, Jesus is asking this question. Would an earthly father refuse to give his son bread, which is something his son desires and needs to live? And the answer is no. Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake. Will he? Same thing. A snake was probably a snake-like fish. Can you think of a snake-like fish? It probably means an eel. 
right? Which to Jews was what? Unclean and inedible, right? So just like the stone, an eel does nothing for the hunger of the boy. It does nothing to satisfy his desire, there it is again, to eat. So again, the question is, would an earthly father refuse to give his son a fish, something he desires and needs to live? And again, the answer is no. So if the answer to the first two obvious questions is no, what is the answer going to be to the third question? Well, when the heavenly father is involved, it's going to be an infinite no. Verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Right? The implied question is, would the heavenly father refuse to enable his children to live the life he's called them to when they desire to do so and ask him for help? And the answer to that question is an infinite no. He will not refuse to do that. And the next question is, why not? Well, it's the same reason as the earthly father. We are his children. And unlike earthly fathers, God is not sinful or evil. There is nothing wrong with him. He is perfect. Or as the song says, he is a good, good father. You know that song. So how do, how do we become children of the Heavenly Father? At infinite cost to God. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, and here it is, so that we might receive adoption, As sons. Folks, we are children of God because God sacrificed his own son to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. But that word redemption means a lot. That word redemption means to obtain, release, or freedom by means of payment. We already said it a few times here, infinite payment. 750 years before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words about Jesus and God's infinite payment for us. Isaiah 53, 9 and 10. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him for your sin and for mine. And so guess what Jesus knows about when he guaranteed that his father would answer our prayer for enablement? He knows Isaiah 53. He knows about the cross. And he knows about the infinite cost. But do you know what Hebrews 12:2 says? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right, folks, Jesus' joy came from the, because he was the one who could provide redemption, and after redemption, enablement 
to God's people to live the life of the kingdom. So think about this. To the original audience sitting there on that hillside in Galilee, the proof that God the Father would enable his children to live the life of the kingdom when they pray was standing right in front of them. He was the answer to his own words. But they didn't know that at the time. But we do. Question, is there better proof that God will answer the prayer for enablement than God sending his son to die so that it could happen? Again, the answer is no. There's no better proof than that. So the final question I think we're all asking is, why do we have to ask for it? Doesn't God already know what we need? Why must we pray? And so to answer that question, I would like to ask you a question. Do you like to go to the doctor? If you're like me, you don't go to the doctor unless something is really, really wrong. Right? Why is that? I think we all assume, some of us anyway, that if we take a couple Advil or some echinacea tea, that we can fix ourselves. A few years ago, I had pneumonia. My heart rate, my resting heart rate was 110. And I had a fever of 104. You know what I did? Went on the internet. (laughs) Tried to fix myself. Could it be that we treat our lives as Christians in the same way as people like me who refuse to go to the doctor? Could it be that we recognize the sin in our lives and try to fix those sins on our own? So Jesus' command to pray is not because God needs to know that we need help. It's because we need to know that we need help. Right? Prayer is an act of humility. And for many of us, it's humiliating to admit that we cannot do something and admit that we need help from outside of ourselves. It's no wonder then that the very first thing that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is being poor in what? Spirit. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means that you've recognized that you've got zero ability on your own, to do anything in the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said in the book of John. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do a little bit. Zero. But when we realize that, and we turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer for help, what do we become? Poor in spirit. So in effect... A prayer to become poor in spirit is answered instantaneously. Do you notice that? When we do it, we become it. And Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit belong to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they have recognized that when it comes to being right with God, that they have nothing that makes them acceptable. Right? We need someone else who is acceptable. We need someone else who is perfect. 
Someone else to stand in our place and be perfect for us. That is what Jesus Christ offers to the world. To be the perfect one who sacrificed his life for those who bank on, trust in, have faith in his perfection. Folks, if you haven't banked on the perfection of Jesus Christ, today can be your day. If that's you... I would like for you to see me or Andrew or any of the deacons after church and we'll pray with you and we'll tell you more about that. But for everyone else, I have a point of application for you. One challenge to do just one thing this week and that is to pray with your Bible open. Let God start the conversation. Let him have the agenda And let him hold up this mirror to your life. And when that mirror, what's in that mirror doesn't look so good, that you admit it, and then then you ask God for help. Can we do that this week? What would it look like if you did that every single day? Dig into this word to let God start the conversation, to see what he has to say. And then to ask him for help. Because remember, God promises to answer that prayer. What would it look like if our entire church did that and lived like that? You know what it would look like? You know, remember in the ser- earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? It would look like that city on a hill that Jesus describes. The light of the world. The salt of the earth. So folks, my challenge to you, there's one application that I ask you to do this week and to pray about is to, is to open this word and let God speak into your life and pray about it. Amen? Can you do that? All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are awesome. Lord, there is no command in your entire word that you don't promise to help us to do. And so, Lord, all you're saying, all you're saying, Lord, is to recognize that and to reach out and to ask for help, Lord. We admit we have no ability, no power on our own uh, to do what is good, to do what is right, Lord. And that is the point that you have made over and over and over again, Lord. And we admit that as a church, and we confess that as a church, that there have been times that we have tried to do that on our own. Uh, But Lord, may you convict us of that. May you help us to recognize and know that your spirit is in us, working and wooing and pushing, uh, Lord, for us to mature and to grow as your people, uh, to be that city on a hill that you speak of. And so, Lord, to those ends, for your name and for your renown and for your reputation, may you help us to see and may you enable us to do what you've called us to do. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you.